break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back with you here on The Punch-Out. 10 21 21st of October 2021. Very happy to be back with you here on the show. And we've got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about Latina Equal Pay Day, which is today. We're going to be talking about a protest movement that continues to royal the African nation of the Sudan. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to talk about the ongoing snowballing scandal at the Federal Reserve. Well, the Federal Reserve Board is embroiled in a growing scandal over what certainly looks like insider trading by many of its top officials, as well as a related cozy relationship between those same officials and the mega banks that run the financial system. And that scandal now leads all the way to the top. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, who has reported in the American Prospect this week, sold somewhere between $1 million and $5 million worth of stocks he owned right before the stock market took a dip in the fall of 2020. According to an examination of the records by prospect journalist Robert Kuttner, the sale happened on October 1st, 2020, right in the midst of a huge controversy over the passing of a COVID relief bill that, at the time, was being resisted by then-President Donald J. Trump. And you may remember that there were all sorts of dire warnings back then that as COVID seemed set to get worse going into the winter, that the economy could essentially fall off of a cliff if there was not another relief bill of some sort. And, in fact, the Federal Reserve itself in the late September meeting or mid-September meeting of its Open Markets Committee noted, quote, participants continue to see the uncertainty surrounding the economic outlook as very elevated, with the path of the economy highly dependent on the course of the virus, on how individuals, businesses, and public officials responded to it, and on the effectiveness of public health measures to address it. Participants cited several downside risks that could threaten the recovery. These include insufficient fiscal stimulus and excessive risk-taking in a very low interest rate environment. Now, this is notable because these notes that the Fed itself was worried that without a relief bill, these uncertainties could have big negative effects on the economy was not made public until October 7th, so seven days after Powell sold millions of dollars of stock. Further, on October 1st, Powell spoke with Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin four different times. On October 6th, Powell himself gave a speech warning that failure to enact a relief bill would be very bad. That same day, Trump announced he had instructed his team to stop negotiations on a relief bill. So now, take a step back and think about this. Powell has more information than any other person probably on earth about the U.S. and the global economy as the Federal Reserve Chair. So just a couple weeks before he made his move to put millions in his bank account, he and other top Fed officials had just had a whole conversation about how there was a good chance the stock market could take a hit, especially if there was no relief bill. 
And then Powell was directly talking to Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, presumably at least partially, about whether or not the Trump administration was going to support a relief bill. And on that same day, he sold between $1 million and $5 million worth of stock. Now, who knows? But I can't be the only one thinking that this looks pretty clearly like insider trading. Powell knew things might not go great, knew a relief package might not be coming, and decided to sell millions in stock to make sure he got maximum value out of his investments. And most of the information he was operating off of was not available to the public at the time. Now, that being said, the Fed has very few rules governing this kind of insider trading by its high officials, so it's not that likely Powell actually broke any laws, although it's certainly possible, but nonetheless, it does look like he was trading on secret knowledge for private gain. This, of course, does make some sense, given that when asked about Dallas Federal Reserve Chair Robert Kaplan's dodgy trades, Powell said, well, he hadn't been paying that close of attention to the disclosures that revealed them. And kind of makes sense. He wouldn't want to look too close since he himself doesn't look that great in the same documents. And on that note, Kaplan and Boston Federal Reserve President Eric Rosengrens have been forced into early retirement because of their trades in and out of positions in the stock and real estate market that seem almost certainly to be trading on their knowledge for personal gain. And in fact, they are being investigated by the Fed's inspector general. Vice Chair Richard Clarida has also come under fire recently for doing millions in trades close to a major announcement by the Fed. And on top of all of that, as Wall Street on Parade reported, The Atlanta Federal Reserve President Raphael Bostic appears to have gotten special treatment from an elite private bank owned by J.P. Morgan. He seems to have been given access to exclusive perks for millionaires, despite not being one, which raises a whole other issue and one where all the facts are not out yet. But many of these scandals also involve the very banks that the Fed oversees directly and has deep relationships with. The overall picture that's painted is one of serious conflicts of interest and self-dealing, which, of course, raises questions of whether the Federal Reserve is serving the public as it claims or Wall Street megabanks. Now, anyone who knows the history of the Fed knows they are essentially a cipher, the economic views and desires of Wall Street. But these scandals continue to add to the evidence that this really is the true nature of the Fed. Sudan is in the midst of a major crisis marked today by huge dueling mass protests in the capital of Khartoum and smaller protests in other cities around the country. And it's happening amidst the ongoing crisis in the eastern part of Sudan that has led to weeks of blocked roads and oil exports. And the context of all this turmoil is the Sudanese mass movement of 2019 that overthrew the government led by Omar al-Bashir, which had been in the saddle with varying partners since 1989. The movement, known in Sudan as the Sudanese Revolution, led to a mixed government of civilian forces coming out of the protest movement and dissident members of the armed forces who turned on Bashir. However, the various settlements to set this government up are what is leading to these protests. The main division is between the civilians in the government and the military. The Forces for Freedom and Change, that's the umbrella for civilian forces in the government, has recently actually split into two. And one side is most of the original group, but then there's the separate breakaway group, which is centered on the justice and equality movement, which had led a long insurgency in Sudan, and they are backing the military. The original FFC forces are demanding that the military step down and that there be a move to an all-civilian government, and they say that the military is not implementing the agreement that led to the condominium government between the two sides initially. The FFC forces backing the military are saying the civilian wing of the government is responsible for deteriorating economic conditions, and the military agrees with that and has called on civilians to overhaul the cabinet, which they have been resisting. And supporters of the military are also saying, well, some of them are saying that perhaps the military should just outright take over. 
There's also a third force, which is more loosely organized, but important. It consists of important professional associations, the Communist Party of Sudan, and other collectives that played a major role in the 2019 process. And they are criticizing the military and the civilian side of the government and calling for more serious changes and reforms politically and economically, saying neither side is pushing forward the true spirit of the 2019 events. And at the same time, this is all taking place in the eastern part of Sudan, Port closures and road closures continue as peoples in eastern Sudan continue to protest the social situation there. While most of the oil from Sudan and South Sudan moves through the east to reach Port Sudan, where it's exported from, the peoples there remain mired in poverty and have very poor access to education and other social services. Protest leaders, many from the Beja people, the major ethnic group in the area, are arguing that attempts by the new government to set up a framework to address issues in eastern Sudan have left them out and are not equitable. Now, there are negotiations going on with the central government and involving the U.N., but it's unclear how much progress is really being made. All in all, as mentioned above, the reality in Sudan right now is that the contradictions introduced by the overthrow of one government and what the future of the country should be are all playing out. All the various players and social forces are offering visions, contending for power and building alliances. One notable factor, however, is that all sides so far are maintaining a peaceful stance in their protest and denouncing any moves towards violence. So while turmoil is significant and the future of the country cloudy, it does seem that as of now, the situation doesn't seem that likely to devolve into major violence and armed conflicts. Today, October 21st, is Latina Equal Pay Day a day designed to bring into focus the need to address pay disparities that Latina women face all across the economy. As the Economic Policy Institute details, quote, last year, a typical Latina worker who worked full-time year-round earned only 57 cents for every dollar earned by white non-Hispanic men. This means that Latinas on average must work nearly 22 months to earn what white non-Hispanic men earn in 12 months, end quote. The disparities really do exist across all sorts of jobs. For instance, among physicians and surgeons, white men are making on average $63.41 an hour. Latina doctors and surgeons, $42.95 an hour. Among registered nurses, white men averaging $34.87 per hour. Latinas, $30.33 per hour. Among elementary and middle school teachers, white men averaging $33.75 an hour. Latinas, $28.38 an hour. Among cashiers, white men are averaging $12.91 an hour. Latinas, $11.68. As the Economic Policy Institute also points out, quote, not only are Latino workers earning less, they are also experiencing higher unemployment from the pandemic-driven economic downturn between 2019 and 2020. The number of full-time year-round Latina earners declined 17.4% from 2019 to 2020, compared with a 9.2% decline for white men. So take this as just another reminder that racism in the labor market is very real and very pernicious. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. 
And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 